this episode of Justice in Motion, I've somehow convinced them to let me talk about Star Wars for half an hour, so I hope you enjoy it even half as much as I will. Hello and welcome to Justice in Motion, the social justice film report. I'm your host, Daniel Swan. So today, the day that this podcast is being released, is a very special one. It is the 4th of May, after all. Now, in the part of the world known as not America, that doesn't mean a lot. 4th of May. Canny young advertising types couldn't twist that into any kind of slogan designed to rally the masses to care about something, celebrate something, or more cynically, buy something. For the May of... Fourth Mayonnaise? No, there's nothing. It's rubbish. But in the US, where you guys take the... I'll charitably describe it as unique approach of saying the month first, then the date... Today becomes May the 4th. Now, no one quite knows who was the first person to realise that May the 4th kind of sounded like May the Force and therefore could be used to adapt Star Wars's trademark farewell of May the Force Be With You into some kind of date-specific celebration. But I imagine that whoever it was felt magical, like a scientist discovering a cure for something. It started unofficially, some Facebook groups as far back as 2008 were using the date as Luke Skywalker Day, and then in 2011 a fan event in Toronto became the first organised, if unofficial, celebration of the day. Then in 2012, Disney bought Lucasfilm, and never ones to shy away from an opportunity to push people towards buying some merch, Disney made the whole thing official in 2013. May the 4th is, by Mickey Mouse's own royal decree, Star Wars Day. Star Wars Day. And so we at the Social Justice Film Institute wanted to mark this very important, very special day by dedicating a whole episode of Justice in Motion to the Wars of Star. They always say that when it comes to social justice, you can't just look out of your window at the here and now. Sometimes, You need to look a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. So please enjoy, with some spoilers, but I'll try to keep them to an absolute minimum, even though a lot of the films have been out for a very long time, a rebellion built on hope. Star Wars and social justice. In 2015, Star Wars Episode VII, The Force Awakens, was released to much fanfare. This was the first new Star Wars film in a decade, and the fan base was positively fizzing with anticipation. The previous trilogy of films, released between 1999 and 2005, had disappointed many, and so Star Wars devotees were desperate to see a return to the highs of the original films, released between 1977 and 1983. But to say that this film, Episode 7, and the two that followed drew some criticism would be an understatement. 
A certain section of the aforementioned fanbase seemed enraged about some of the creative decisions made by the filmmakers. To summarise some of their common objections, allow me to read from a blog post written by David G. Brown about Episode 7 on the website returnofkings.com that is typical in its grievances. Spread my warning across the galaxy, Padawans. The Force Awakens is spectacularly replete with the handiwork of the avowed social justice warrior J.J. Abrams. So where can I possibly start in my criticisms? From the casting, which puts minorities and women incessantly and ridiculously in your face to make a political point, parentheses, not tell a story, to the laziest of all space battles, the problems with the episode 7 are more than numerous. So there's obviously quite a lot to unpack there, as there is with much of the hard-hitting pro-male journalism on returnofkings.com, but I'll start with the minorities and women bit. In 2012, Lucasfilm, the company started by Star Wars progenitor George Lucas, was purchased, as so many other media companies have been, by Disney. Immediately they began plans to make more Star Wars films and to cast more people of colour and women in prominent roles therein. Now maybe that was because the enormous entertainment monolith believes deeply that gender and racial representation is simply the right thing to do, maybe Disney are smart enough to have realised, however long it's taken, that people enjoy seeing themselves on screen. We empathise with characters we see, and when those characters look in some way like us, it's easier to do. People should feel like the stories on the big screen are made, on some level, with them in mind or at the least, an awareness that they exist. Maybe Disney want people to feel seen and recognised for no reason other than it being a good thing to do. Maybe that. And maybe, just maybe, the giant media conglomerate cares about representation because, as a company, they care only about money. And they've realised from incredibly lucrative films like The Hunger Games, Black Panther, Maleficent, Bad Boys for Life and Crazy Rich Asians that women and people of colour in this bizarre world known as the 21st century have disposable incomes now and are very willing to spend money on Disney products. And so it kind of makes fiscal sense to make sure that the people are feeling welcomed into the cinema. There's also a sense, I think, that companies are seeing the way the wind is blowing and where society is heading. And society, slowly, slowly, slowly but surely, is following the path laid out by Dr. King when he said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Now, it may not happen as quickly as it ought, or as quickly as a lot of us would ideally like, but from a social justice point of view, in general, things are as good as they have ever been, and they continue to get better. The world is changing in so many ways. Humans are becoming more aware and more understanding of so many different kinds of humans, and the old opinions are falling by the wayside. By way of a, for instance, returnofkings.com's most recent article was from 2018, saying they were taking an indefinite hiatus because they 
couldn't make enough money talking about how men are victims because companies that advertise on websites don't want to be associated with that kind of thinking. Again, maybe this was for honourable reasons, and maybe for fiscal reasons, but it all points toward progressive attitudes becoming more and more prevalent. To describe it as political makes a fundamental misunderstanding of the world around you. Surely the only level of diversity that can be political is any level that doesn't reflect the world as it is. Like, for instance, if everyone was white and male. And the fact remains that even if every Star Wars film or science fiction fantasy film were cast exclusively with women and people of colour for the next decade, the overall canon would still heavily favour white male characters. Now, the people who criticise the diversity in the more recent Star Wars films will often cite Princess Leia as a bastion of inclusion. Disney is solving a problem that didn't exist. These films were diverse enough. Princess Leia was in them, and she fired lasers and shouted at people and murdered her captors and everything. And hey, I am never going to downplay how amazing a character Leia was and is, especially for the late 70s and early 80s. But let's, just for a second, look outside of Princess Leia. As demonstrated in a wonderfully evocative video by Chris Wade for the New York magazine, the only female characters other than Princess Leia with any lines of dialogue whatsoever in the original trilogy are Luke's aunt, who has a couple of lines before she dies, spoiler, Mon Mothma, rebel leader who delivers the exposition about the second Death Star to the assembled Resistance fighters, it's actually pretty cool, and an unnamed Resistance member at the Hoth base at the beginning of The Empire Strikes Back while the Empire is, you know, striking back, who says, Stand by ion control. Fire. That's it. Three women, two of them named, and the sum total of their lines is 63 seconds. 63 seconds of the over 23,000 seconds of all three films. Call it tokenism, call it the Smurfette principle, but a single interesting female character doesn't make a work of storytelling a paragon of gender dynamics. It just doesn't. In the prequel trilogy, again, we have Queen Padme Amidala, a relatively interesting, fleshed-out character. But outside of her, we've got little Anakin's mother, who has a few lines before she dies, spoiler. Mon Mothma, a rebel leader, whose lines in Episode 3 are actually left on the cutting room floor. And one of Amidala's handmaidens, but only when she's pretending to be Amidala herself, which I'm not entirely sure counts. Again, there's your one representative 50% of the population. Enjoy! And the same goes for people of colour. In an article on thegeektwins.com, they ranked the top 25 black characters in the entire Star Wars cinematic canon. And number nine, the ninth best black character, had zero lines. That's across 11 live-action films. And any Asian or Latinx representation, even smaller. These films, up until the Disney takeover, had green faces and grey faces and purple faces and alabaster faces and orange faces and 
whatever colour Jabba the Hutt was, but very few black or brown faces. Even the blackest man in the galaxy, Darth Vader, enveloped in black robes and voiced by African-American James Earl Jones, eventually pulls off his mask to reveal, yeah, he's white as well. When we saw humans, we saw white humans, and that matters. So Disney were fixing a problem that was absolutely there. Don't let anybody tell you differently. The naysayers decry diverse casting as affirmative action-esque, claiming that actors are cast not because they were the best for the role, but simply because the colour of their skin makes a political point. Firstly, this assumes that most films are cast with the best actor possible, ignoring availability, actor interest, height, and numerous other non-talent-based casting considerations. And secondly, this also assumes that politics played no part in the casting of the original trilogy's actors. When in fact, George Lucas begged legendary Japanese actor Toshiro Mifune to play Obi-Wan Kenobi as he had based Kenobi on Mifune's character in samurai film The Hidden Fortress. Mifune worried that the science fiction elements would look silly and cheap, which, to be fair, they often did at the time, and that the portrayal of the character would tarnish the image of the samurai, turn the film down, forcing Lucas to cast Alec Guinness instead. Not a bad backup, you have to agree. Even more controversially, Lucas had also planned to cast an African-American actor as Han Solo. Glyn Turman, better known as Mayor Royce on The Wire, was almost cast, commenting in an interview with Empire magazine, In those days, it said black actor, white actor, Hispanic actor for every role, but it didn't say either for the Han Solo part. It didn't specify black actor. I was rather pleased because I was just being called in as a talent. In the end, knowing that a romantic relationship between Han Solo and Princess Leia was probable, and the politics around an interracial on-screen couple in the late 1970s, Lucas veered away. In his own words, I didn't want to make Guess Who's Coming to Dinner at that point, so I sort of backed off. So Alec Guinness and Harrison Ford were, in effect not cast because they were the best for the roles, but because of the colour of their skin. Returnofkings.com's cry of J.J. Abrams is a social justice warrior bears examining as well. What does that mean? What is a social justice warrior? Well, social justice warrior is, to quote one of its earliest formalised uses on UrbanDictionary.com from back in 2011, a pejorative term for an individual who repeatedly and vehemently engages in arguments on social justice on the internet, often in a shallow or not well thought out way for the purpose of raising their own personal reputation. A social justice warrior, or SJW, does not necessarily strongly believe all that they say or even care about the groups they are fighting on behalf of. You'll notice that the author of this definition, known as Poopum, believes this word to have a very specific meaning and to be used frequently enough to warrant an abbreviation. But it wasn't always so. Uses from before 2011 tend to be much more positive and general, social justice warrior, all lowercase, as opposed to anything official. Per a report by Abby Olheiser for the Washington Post in 2015, lexicographers haven't done a full search 
for its earliest citation, but a cursory search for the phrase turns up several positive uses spanning from the early 90s through the early noughties. Baptist minister, the Reverend James Obie Sr.'s 1992 obituary in the Houston Chronicle was titled Social Justice Warrior Dies. In 2007, Social Justice Warrior Monsignor David Capo was honoured with an award. And lawyer-turned-filmmaker Anna Kokinos told a newspaper reporter in 2009 that what attracted her to law at that age was the idea of being a social justice warrior. Again, social justice warrior, all lowercase. But the reason for Ms. Olheiser's article was that the phrase had been entered into the Oxford Dictionaries, and that doesn't happen to every entry on UrbanDictionary.com, thank goodness. So why did it get so popular? In 2014, a phenomenon known as Gamergate erupted in the video game world. For its proponents, Gamergate was about ethics in video game journalism and the troubling relationships between journalists and game developers leading to reviews focusing on and being overly complimentary about games that highlighted progressive social issues. For the enemies or victims of Gamergate, it was a sustained, organized and pernicious campaign of misogynist abuse, some of it illegal, directed at women in video gaming who were labeled social justice warriors. One might think that a term that grew out of such a toxic movement would be one that people wouldn't want to co-opt for their own campaign against Star Wars. But to think that would ignore the fact that the ideas behind the campaigns are largely the same. As with these movies, some people who'd grown up playing video games without any representation thought that now they were in the industry themselves, maybe, make, maybe they could make some. Some people thought that women might like to play as women, people of colour might like to play as people of colour, people with disabilities might like to play as people with disabilities, and white dudes might not mind playing as people who didn't look like them, and that those new and diverse playable characters might be more appealing if their personalities, abilities and costumes were interesting and numerous and in some ways practical, respectively. <laughs> Some people tried to move the industry forward, and others resisted that, wanting to keep things just as they were. Because where some people have grown up in a world where their video games, their movies, their most other forms of media have not represented them at all, or maybe just had a single token offering, others had grown up seeing themselves everywhere. I mean, I'm one of them. I am a straight, white, cisgendered, middle-class, able-bodied man, and as such, Western entertainment has been all me, baby. I have been spoiled for choice in characters to identify with. As a young fellow, I could watch any show, any movie, and be guaranteed a few people who looked enough like me that my mind could slot me into proceedings easily. When I watched Power Rangers, was I Billy? Was I Tommy? Was I Jason? In The Goonies, am I more a brand, a Mikey, a mouth, a chunk? In Saved by the Belt, was I a Zack? Was I an AC? Or was I a Screech? Whoever I chose, the point is, I had a choice. The fact that I am, in reality, definitely a Screech. Nerdy, awkward, nerdy, 
awkward, fairly low self-esteem has prevented me from ever thinking that any movie, any TV show was made for me and that I had any claim over it. The issue comes, and bear with me here because this one's a bit weird, from too many Zach Morrises. For those unfamiliar with Saved by the Bell lore, Zach, our protagonist, has lots of confidence, engages in lots of scheming, lots of manipulation of others, he has a sense that the world is there for him and him alone, and any changes to the status quo are a personal attack. And it's that kind of thinking that gets us here. These Zacks, if you will, are being asked to share something that to this point has been almost exclusively theirs. Now, if that was an episode of Saved by the Bell, I guarantee Zack would concoct some kind of scheme to bring other people to his cause, wreak havoc on Bayside High, and ultimately keep things just as they are. There's an argument that diversifying storytelling is a zero-sum game, that the more media that acquiesces to the diversity of real life, the less that's left for straight white males. Now, there might be a kernel of truth in there, but the reality is that there is more media being made now than ever before. So even a smaller slice of the overall pie is still vastly more than could have been enjoyed at the birth of Star Wars. There will forever be stories told of dashing, able-bodied, chiseled jawline, cisgender, rippling physiqued white guys saving the docile hourglass damsel in distress from the ethnically vague bad ethnically vague bad guy if you like these stories i have good news you will never be cut off other people will just have their things to watch as well and if the bulk of stories end up getting told about people who don't look like you and you're struggling to contort your self-image to see yourself as this non-you hero then maybe ask any of the non-white, non-male, non-able-bodied, non-straight people for advice. They've been doing it for a long time. I'm sure they'll have some tips. And the good news is, they're easy to find as well, because there's so many more of them than you. The difficult but important question to ask with any of these types of anti-progressive movements is, beyond the name-calling and the venom and the tantrums, do they have any kind of a point? Is there a nugget of truth around which the rest of this movement has formed? Has Disney done a disservice to Star Wars with diversity in its latest trilogy? And the answer here is yes, in a way. Whilst diversity of casting is important and you should be proud as a production company to hire from a varied pool of talent, the ferocity with which Disney patted itself on the back for it could have been mistaken for the Heimlich manoeuvre. And it's one thing to cast diverse actors, but another to use them well. In a now famous GQ interview, John Boyega, playing reformed stormtrooper Finn in episodes 7, 8 and 9, vented about the treatment of the people of colour hired to be part of a much vaunted diverse cast. He said, what I would say to Disney is do not bring out a black character, market them to be much more important in the franchise than they are, and then have them pushed to the side. It's not good. I'll say it straight up. Like, you guys knew what to do with Daisy Ridley. You knew what to do with Adam Driver. You knew what to do with these other people. But when it came to Kelly Marie Tran, when it came to John Boyega, you know F all. And just to clarify, he did not say F. 
Now, one could argue that a saga that is so keenly interested in the fortunes of a single Caucasian family is probably going to have a white person in the forefront of the story. That still leaves a lot of story and interest and character and development around the Skywalkers. And yes, Disney took strides in making their cast list a lot more representative with regard to females and people of colour. But there's a lot more to diversity than that. And whilst many disabilities, many gender identities are effectively invisible, and so any number of background players could feasibly be trans or deaf or non-binary or gay, statistically speaking, sooner or later, a character that we are given the time to get to know should really be representative of the larger world. Disney also faces criticism from some people for the whitewashed First Order, the resistance may have been much more ethnically diverse than the rebellion of old, but the people, in crisp uniforms and funny hats, remained as white as ever. The argument goes that if the good guys are diverse, surely the bad guys should be as well. And whilst that sounds logical on paper, it doesn't take into account the decades of racial typecasting that has taken place outside of the Star Wars universe, where black and brown people have long taken the role of the villain of the piece. Course correcting away from that image will happen a lot quicker if the wheel is pulled toward the opposite direction for a spell, and so Disney had good reason to maintain the Caucasian bad guy brigade. But, and you might call me a dreamer, I hope to live to see a day when people of all races can gather together on the flight deck of an Imperial Star Destroyer, or whatever the next iteration of villain ships are called, and try to laser beam some good guys and it doesn't feel weird at all to watch. Ah, one day. The people that rail against progressive shifts in media are, like many who rail against progression elsewhere in life, often longing for a bygone era, a simpler time that is a figment of their collective imagination. They want to return to a world of Star Wars that wasn't so concerned with politics and just told rip-roaring adventure stories. But such a Star Wars never existed. George Lucas sat down to write the original Star Wars film, initially given the streamlined title Adventures of Luke Starkiller, as taken from the Journal of the Wills Saga 1, The Star Wars, in 1973. The Vietnam War had just ended and Lucas was still angry about the United States' growing military presence in the world. It was a presence he saw as proof of the continued spread of fascist colonialism at the hands of the United States, terrorising poor people of colour worldwide. It was imperialism at its worst. In an interview for the Chicago Tribune in 2015, Lucas stated explicitly that the movie was really about the Vietnam War, and that was the period where Nixon was trying to run for a term, which got me thinking historically about how do democracies get turned into dictatorships. Because the democracies aren't overthrown, they're given away. In Lucas's fantastical galaxy, Nixon inspired the Emperor, the threat of nuclear weapons inspired the Death Star. In Lucas's fantastical galaxy, Nixon inspired the Emperor, the threat of nuclear weapons inspired the Death Star, Vietnamese freedom fighters inspired the Rebellion, and the Ewoks in particular. The story was always political even if some people didn't see it that way. But why wouldn't they see it? Why would the Make Star Wars Great Again crowd be so obtuse to the political allegory? 
The same reason that so many people prefer the things they used to like to the things they like today. Because when they watched Star Wars for the first time all those years ago, they were children. They watched the film with a child's eyes, with a child's view of the world, and a child's barometer of good art. And as any parent who has been forced to watch any direct-to-DVD film with their child more than 20 times will tell you, children aren't looking for subtlety or nuance or themes in the things they love. Children are just looking to love it. So of course people will see Star Wars as a simple... So of course people will see Star Wars as a simple tale told in simpler times. They themselves were simpler when they saw it. So, to conclude, the people who are angered by Star Wars' diverse casts and focus on women and people of colour seem to be angry not because of the genuine errors made by Disney, but by the thing they love and have loved for years being opened up to all. Sure, some of them are just racists and misogynists, and that's a shame, but some of them are geeks with too strong a sense of ownership. Geeks, and I say this as a very proud geek, don't often like to share. We have probably at some point been mocked for liking the things we like with the passion that we like them, and that forces you to create a sense of ownership with that thing. It's your thing because no one else would get it. And so the door to your clubhouse being opened up and everyone else pouring in can feel intrusive. It's the same as the music aficionado getting angry when their favourite underground band finds mainstream success and the people who attend the gigs aren't just hairy guys with obscure Smiths t-shirts anymore, but people who don't even own vinyl record players and just listen to music on Spotify. But the joy of a passion is sharing that passion with others, and the more people involved, the more people to share it with, and the more people to spend money on it. And so the more money other people will spend to make new versions of that thing. It's all positive. And hey, if you love the original trilogy and nothing else, then just watch those films. Yes, if you feel like the later films are terrible for whatever reason, then the missed opportunity of that is galling, I understand. But none of that affects those original films. They're still there, waiting in your collection for you to love them all over again. Don't tear newer things down because you don't like them as much as your older things. Because some kid is watching these newer films and seeing themselves on screen, and they're falling in love with Star Wars just as powerfully as you did all those years ago. Just let them have it, yeah? And to put an even more positive ending on this, if the films are written by a progressive, liberal Californian, what social justice lessons can we learn from Star Wars. Well, firstly, Luke Skywalker teaches us that the circumstances of your upbringing need not extinguish the flame of hope and determination from your chest. He's raised as a moisture farmer, which combines the simple, rewarding but unspectacular life of a farmer with the unpleasantness of the word moisture. He yearns for more and never gives up on his dreams to escape the sand dunes and head off into the wider galaxy. A pair of droids threaten to launch him into adventure, but he never would have gone on that adventure if he had thought, people like me, from places like this, don't do things like that. He took the opportunity that was offered and ended up saving the galaxy, which is pretty sweet, all told. 
Princess Leia teaches us that social justice doesn't happen if people of privilege don't use that privilege to act. She's a princess. She's above it all. She'd likely have led a very comfortable life regardless of what happened in the rest of the galaxy. But she knew that the Empire was fascist. She knew that she had to do something. And if she hadn't volunteered for the mission to transport the plans of the Death Star, and she hadn't loaded them and her message into R2-D2, then Luke and Obi-Wan wouldn't have been drawn into the plan, wouldn't have rescued Leia, and wouldn't have destroyed the Death Star. And then the whole galaxy would have fallen. The suffering of the downtrodden is not a problem that the downtrodden alone can fix. It takes the privileged as well. Leia also teaches us the importance of hope. Hope sustained her through her dark hours. Despite the atrocities and hardships that she endured, the destruction of her home planet Alderaan before her very eyes, and later the loss of her son Ben Solo as he morphed into Kylo Ren, if her hope ever wavered, she tried not to let on. Leia would keep up morale among the Leia would keep up morale among the rebel fighters serving under her with a simple reminder. Hope is like the sun. If you only believe in it when you can see it, you'll never make it through the night. Life is tough. It's going to give us all a beating at one time or another, but when that happens, hope is sometimes the only thing that we can cling to, and cling to it we must. And what about Han Solo? Han teaches us by coming back at the end of the Battle of Yavin at the conclusion of Episode 4, when he had already been paid for his time transporting Luke and Obi-Wan off Tatooine, that so much good in the fight for... that so much good in the fight for social justice is done by volunteers. Yes, it's lovely to get paid and we all need to put a roof over our heads, of course we do, but to give of your time to a cause you believe in does so much good. And it doesn't have to be as much as shooting a laser that knocks the ship of a man about to shoot your friend off course. It can be as simple as knocking door to door, manning a petition booth, or making some phone calls. Or even just making some sandwiches for the people that are doing those things. It all adds up. It all makes a difference. Movements are built on the contributions of volunteers. I think we'd all agree that Han Solo knew that. Okay, maybe I'm reaching a little bit with that last one, but the central lesson of Star Wars that feeds into everything social justice is about is that incredible, seemingly impossible struggles can be won with the power of cooperation. For me, it's most keenly felt in my personal favourite Star Wars film, Rogue One. The conclusion of the film sees all of our heroes, Jin. Cassian, K2SO, Bodhi, Chirrut and Baze, drawn together by fate, working together to get the Death Star plans. They've all got their task, and they all push ahead with it. Remove any of them, any link in the chain, and the entire mission crumbles. But they stuck to the plan, they had faith in one another, and managed to succeed against all odds, and thus providing the perfect microcosm of the rebellion as a whole. A group of people united around a single cause, achieving something no one of them could have done alone. When we look at the news, there are many causes to choose from, many wrongs in this world that need to be righted, and the hurdles may seem insurmountable. I mean, you're going up against companies, governments, empires sometimes. 
but with cooperation and hard work, anything is possible, just like in a galaxy far, far away. And there we go. I hope I don't need to explain to you how much I enjoyed doing that, trawling through the Star Wars annals. Uh, a great thrill this week, even if it had to be through the lens of people who think that being a warrior for social justice is any kind of bad thing. Well, you take the rough with the smooth. Uh, so this month, May, we are very, very excited at the Social Justice Film Institute to be co-hosting uh, some blocks of translations for the uninitiated translations is Seattle's Transgender Film Festival, uh, a wonderful, wonderful event hosted by Three Dollar Bill Cinema. Um, the one that's coming up that I, I need to tell you about as a matter of urgency uh, is the Filmmaker Networking Hour that's happening this Saturday, May 8th. Obviously, it's difficult to uh, socialize a lot or network uh, in COVID times. Um, so we're putting on this event to, to give you filmmakers uh, as much opportunity as you can. Uh, for all information, uh, about that event and the whole festival, go to $3billcinema.org forward slash translations. And there we go. Uh, thank you very much for listening to this episode of our podcast. We really appreciate it. Uh, make sure that you subscribe to us wherever you found us uh, so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. Watch films, be fair to each other, and may the force be with you always. This episode of Justice in Motion was written by Daniel Swan and was a production of the Social Justice Film Institute. Thank you.